and God. They mistook Paul and Barnabas as false gods and, and gave their hope and their allegiance and their honor to them as the one that could do miracles. And they proclaim the true gospel. And they say, this is not us, but a creator God who is doing this. So turn from those vain things. Turn from them and turn to the one true God. So we have a response when it comes to hearing the message. Will we believe? Will we respond in unbelief? Or will we misguide our affections and miss the point of the gospel? And together this morning, we want to say that we believe. We believe that God has made a way for us through Jesus. Now what do we do? So we respond. Where do we go from here? And this morning, where we want to say is that there is even a goal behind this belief. When we choose to put our faith and our hope and our purpose in the truth of Jesus Christ and what he has done on our behalf, that our lives are reoriented. They are centered around a goal. And that goal of our lives is not just to be good people and to do good things and to stay out of trouble And to try and look like we have it together, the goal of our lives is to make much of this great God who has forgiven us of our sin, what separates us from him, and given us life. Not just life here that's going to end, but life past this life. Hope that while we are in this life, we have something that we are living for. And hope that when this life is over, that we will spend eternity with our affections and our gaze pointed in worship to a God who is the only true person worthy of our praise. We have a goal. We have a purpose. We see this this morning at the end of Acts chapter 14. Starting in verse 19, it says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went out with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to the city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations... We must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And they had spoken the word in Perga and went down to Attilia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commanded, commended by the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together and they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. So when we think about the idea of goals, we think about there being, thanks man, when we think about there being goals in our lives and kind of being centered around something, um, think about the way that we set goals kind of individually or a part of um, a family or a part of organizations that we're connected with or in businesses, we set these goals and then we orient what we do around them. It's like a basic leadership principle. What are we doing? What's the goal? What's the end goal? And how are we going to get there? How are we going to move in that direction? Then how do we assess whether whatever X goal was accomplished? Well, we do it by whether the goal was accomplished. Was it purposeful? Think about um, goals in your own life. 
or think of the life of our church, right? So even though we completed in 2010, we completed the, the 2010 vision. Lots of goals in there, time zones covered with mission projects, churches planted, um, uh, mission work done on different continents. The goal drove what we did as a church in terms of mission. We had a goal in front of us, and as a church, we rallied around it and we went for it. Think about individually. I mean, think, Danny, this, like running a marathon, that's a goal. Why do you do that? I don't really know. 26 miles, it's like, a, I'm, I, like I'm all for running like when people are chasing you or for like small periods of time. I get it. But 26 miles, that goal, it like, that even just kind of like throws me off in general, you know? But it's a goal and you train and you prepare and you, 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 you um, change the way you eat, the way you apportion your time to certain disciplines. You do all these things because you've got this goal in mind and you're headed in, headed in this direction. With financial planning, with retirement, there are things you're saving for, a place you want to land once you decide or are able to stop working. And so you plan and you save and you put aside. You've got this goal and you're moving in that, moving in that direction. And this morning, when it comes to the Christian life, there is this goal that is in front of us. This goal of our lives making much of the person of God through the work of Jesus Christ. That is our goal while we are here on earth. And that goal, it will not be completed. It will not be finished until we are face to face with our God and Father. Until we're in front of him and we're worshiping him face to face until our hope Our hope is full, it's fulfilled. And so this morning, as we talk about the message of the gospel, as we have talked about responding to this gospel, the question is, are our lives, if we're saying we believe in this truth of Jesus, are our lives centered around that truth? Is making much of God the chief desire of our lives? And we're centering everything around him, and we're moving in that direction individually. And again, I'm not just talking about doing these outward things that make us look like we're put together. I'm even talking about those inner parts of our lives, those things that we want or we think about that nobody else even knows we want or think about. Do they reflect our affection, our love, our love for Christ? Paul and Barnabas, they were, given, um, they were given a goal in Acts chapter 13. They were given a goal by the Holy Spirit. They were set apart. They were commissioned out to do a work. And you would think that if you're given a goal by the Holy Spirit, by God, that it would be an easy road that is paved for you, something that's in front of you that you'd be able to just go for, right? Like everything would just be kind of cleared out of the way and they'd just be able to walk kind of with ease to the people that they were going to share the gospel with and that hearts would be fertile and Seed would fall and take deep root, the gospel would, and it would bear fruit in their lives, and it would be an easy road for them. But that's not what we see this morning in this passage. We don't see ease. We see difficulty. But we see that even in the midst of responding to that difficulty, there is that goal that is set in mind, that goal of a life being centered around the work of God through the person of Jesus Christ. Look with me again. We're in Acts uh, chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 19. So we're going to do two things. We're just going to kind of walk through this passage and kind of explain different nuances of what uh, Luke is writing about here. Um, and then we're going to go back and see some, some implications of the way that we see Paul and Barnabas' response 
to the situations that they encountered, some things that that translates to us individually in our own life. So first, let's just look at the passage. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 19. It says, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Okay, so remember um, previously, we, uh, Paul and Barnabas, uh, at the beginning of chapter 14 um, and at the end of chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are traveling to Antioch first and then to Iconium, and the people that they come in contact with, some of them uh, believe, and some of them um, respond in unbelief. And in the midst of that unbelief, there's even a little bit of hostility to the point that um, they were making plans when they, in, when they were in Iconium to do harm to them. And so Paul and Barnabas, uh, they leave at the end of that, and they go to Lystra, they go to Derby, which is about 100 miles away. So in the course of what is happening here, these Jews that were in opposition to the truth of the gospel, they responded with unbelief, hostile unbelief. When they responded, they have, in some way, as word has traveled, they know that they're in Lystra, and they travel about 100 miles from Antioch and Iconium down just to confront, um, to confront Paul and Barnabas. So they come from Antioch and Iconium, and it says that they have persuaded the crowds. Now these crowds, these are the same crowds that we were talking about um, at, at the middle part of last week in chapter 14. These crowds that whenever Paul and Barnabas, they see this man who's lame, he can't walk, um, they see, Paul sees faith in this man and, um, and tells him to get up and walk, and he does, and so then the crowds, they see this, and they respond with some kind of belief, saying the gods have come down to visit us, and they start coming to worship Paul and Barnabas. And so there is this idea of belief that Paul and Barnabas then correct and say, this isn't about us. This is about a living God who has enabled this to happen. Okay? So they have, and then at the end of that, they, he goes through this kind of apologetic discourse of what this means. And the people decide not to sacrifice. They basically say that they stop short of, of giving, uh, giving offerings, giving sacrifices to them. So it's the same crowd that was persuaded to believe and persuaded to believe correctly. And then these Jews that are really angry, they show up on the scene and they persuade them in yet another direction. It says they persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So they come, they persuade the crowds, and the crowds together make this decisive action to stone Paul. In the midst of their unbelief, hostility is birthed. And they come to the point that it looks like they're going to take Paul's life. Now let's take just a little aside here, okay? So Paul is being faithful to his mission. He's been set apart. He's traveling. He's sharing the gospel. Even in the midst of adversity, he's continuing to move forward. That's what the book of Acts is all about, is how the gospel continues to move forward. And Paul does that. At times, he's able to just sit and kind of disciple and spend time with the people that believe. Sometimes he's got to kind of move around crowds in order for his life to be spared. But at this point, there's no escaping. The crowds, in some way, we don't know how, they kind of overtake him and they stone him. Now, I don't know what kind of imagery you have in your mind when you think of, of stoning. Um, I used to, when I was a kid, think about like little pebbles on the playground, like you're just picking up handfuls of gravel and just kind of like tossing it. You know what I mean? Like just kind of, ow, that hurt type deal. When you look up the Greek word of what we're talking about here, it's basically like impaling. There are these large stones that they're taking and throwing them against Paul. I mean, it's brutal. Now, there's another scene that we see in the book of Acts Another scene where we see a stoning and we see Paul. 
You guys remember with me back in Acts chapter 7, the stoning of Stephen. This is before the conversion of Paul when he was still Saul. Stephen is preaching the truth of Jesus, preaching that he is God put on flesh, come to earth to reconcile man to God. And they stone Paul, and at the end, they stone Stephen. And at the end of that passage where it talks about Stephen being stoned, it says, and the people were throwing their coats at the feet of a man named Saul. So there's this part of me that thinks, even as we're looking at this passage today, and this idea of Paul kind of like huddled down on the floor, having these stones just hurled at his body to the point that he looks completely lifeless. They've drug his limp body outside of the city because they think that he's dead. At some point, does he remember that scene in his mind? Does he remember what it was like to see that happen and to have those coats thrown at his feet for someone that was proclaiming the exact same thing that he just proclaimed and a similar recourse came on him? Does that enter his mind? So he's laying there, he's outside of the city, his body looks completely lifeless. It says in verse 20, but then the disciples, they gather around him. And he rose up and he entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Now the disciples gathering around him, um, they likely included uh, one young Timothy who was converted in Lystra. And even in the letter that Paul writes uh, to Timothy and that Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he writes about the stoning. He writes about his life almost being completely taken from him. But the disciples, they gather around him and he gets up and he goes on the next day. So in, in, in some way, his lifeless body goes from the appearance of death to getting up and moving on to carrying the, the gospel. Verse 21, so they go to Derby, and when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, okay, so this does not divert him. He's got a goal, he's got a mission, it's in front of him, and it does not divert him. Now let's remember that Paul was an apostle, he had a crazy appearance of Jesus to him on a road, and he was commissioned out to take the gospel to the nations. Like that was Paul's goal, right? That's a goal specifically for him. And so when we look at this and we see kind of like the stamina of Paul, that he goes from being stoned to getting up the next day and going out to the city and he shares the gospel again in another city that's really only 20 miles away, shares the gospel in another city, we may think this is just like a supernatural act of Paul, right? Like he's just going because it was Paul on his mission. Let's remember back to Jesus's last words in Matthew 28. When, when Jesus, before he ascended, after he's resurrected from the grave, after he's been crucified, before he ascended, he's um, among the disciples. And before he goes up, what he says is, go you that are here, go and make disciples of all nations. Not this guy Paul is going to come along and I'm going to do some crazy experience with him and I'm going to give him some extra kind of gifting and he's going to go. But he says to the disciples, the 11 that are there, and there are probably some other crowds there with him, go and make disciples of all nations. You go with your individual gifting and your individual personalities and the way that God has made you, 
the way that Jesus himself has empowered them and taught them, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in who? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's not the end, but, and lo, and yes, Jesus, I will, he says to them, be with you always, even until the end of the age. And so Paul, he is living this out. He's living out the words that he didn't even hear in that gathering. He heard separately. He didn't even hear in that gathering. He's living that out, taking the gospel to the nations. It says that um, he preached, he made disciples, obeyed the Great Commission, essentially. It says, um, they then returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. All right, so if we had a map, and if I would have been smart enough, we would have had a map up here for you to see, but I'm not, so we don't. Um, So they're in Derby, they go back to Lystra, then they go back to Iconium, then they go back to Antioch. Now, what if we had the map, which we don't? Look in the back, look in the book of maps in the back of your Bible, not now, but later. Um, You would see that they don't have to go back that way. It would have been just, been just as easy for them to end up in their origination going by foot. It would have been shorter going, um, going southwest. Would have been closer, would have been shorter. But instead, Paul chooses to go back to the places where he saw persecution. Now, why would he do that? Why would he go back that same direction? It tells us, it says that he strengthened the souls of the disciples. So he goes back for the sake of the church. He goes back to these cities, to those that did believe in order to strengthen them and encourage them, encouraging them to continue in the faith, it says in verse 22. He encouraged them to keep on going even when it seemed like everything else was pointing in the exact opposite direction, when it barely even made sense. He goes back for the sake of the church to strengthen, to encourage, and then he says, Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You wonder if as he's traveling, are there still these bruises on his face? Is he walking with a limp of sorts? When he is going to encourage them and to strengthen them, what are they seeing before them? And then he says, it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of heaven. And they can see that in front of them. Flesh. Verse 23. It says, When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed to the Lord to they committed um, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So um, Paul appointed and committed leaders to the Lord just as he had been appointed and committed back in Acts chapter 13. So it's like his mission, his form that he was a part of. He hasn't even deviated from that even in the midst of such severe opposition. But he has stuck with it and he's following, he's following the same model. So then they travel some more. So then verse 25, when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attila and from there they sailed to Antioch where they started, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work that had been fulfilled. So it's almost like they're going back to their sponsoring church of sorts. The people that sent them out in the first place, they're going back to that place. And it's saying that they are going to talk about the work that has been fulfilled, what has been accomplished. In verse, um, in verse 27, it says that they gathered the church together. So it's like, imagine this kind of like homecoming. It's probably really subtle and, and, um, 
And not this huge fanfare, but these missionaries that they have sent off that have been gone, they have come back home, they are pulling into dock, they are getting their bearings together, and then they gather the church together and they declared, they tell them all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So he's telling his sending church, the people that were a part of seeing the Holy Spirit kind of send them out and commission them out, he's coming back and saying, this is actually a work that has been done. Not only are we going and we're saying, um, telling the truth of the gospel, we're going to places where their actual worldview is the exact opposite of even Jewish tradition. They're pagan, they're pushed away from him, but they are believing a door of faith has been opened to all. We went out for what we were, what, and, and went for what we were aiming to accomplish. And verse 28 says, and they remained no little time with the disciples. So they are ending out this journey. They're going and they're going hard. They're not sparing any expense. They are going and they are intentionally sharing the good news of Jesus. And there is receptivity, there is belief, and there is rejection, there is unbelief. There is joy that comes along with strengthening and encouraging the church. And there is the... the um, not even discomfort, but the pain that comes along with the, the severe opposition that they faced when it came to the stoning. They had a goal in front of them. They had a goal to take the gospel with them as they went. And what caused, it's what caused them to keep on going. Not just their inner drive, not just some kind of like special um, uh, unction that was put on them, even though there, there, there was this particular gifting given to Paul. But we see this goal that's in front of them to carry the name of Jesus, to make much of the one who has saved them, and to point to the goodness of God who put it all into motion in the first place. They have a goal, and they're going to keep going. So this morning, for us, we look at this passage. There are some things that we look at it and we're just like, I can't even kind of relate to that idea that someone would take me and push me down in a corner and would abuse me in such a way and then pull me outside, my limp body pull me outside and this is totally acceptable. I can't even relate to that. My mind can't even go there. But take a step back from that. Take a step back from kind of the end result for just a second and think about what brought them to that place in the first place. Severe devotion to the cause of Jesus Christ. Severe devotion to the gospel. That even in the face of suffering, they would endure. That the goal of lifting up the person of Christ for the sake of God, lifting him up, that any cost any cost, they would endure for the goal. So this morning, for us in this room, if we are people that have put faith in Jesus, that have trusted in him, and we say that we are people that are separated from God, and we know that there is no way to achieve forgiveness for what separates us from him, apart for a sacrifice, and that sacrifice that's eternal, that would endure, and that sacrifice is Jesus. That we put our faith in the fact that he died in our place after living in perfection. That he rose from the grave. 
that he ascended into heaven and that he sits hand at the right hand of God, completing the work of salvation. That when we put our faith in him and we're following Jesus, that that goal is in front of us. And for us this morning, I would say that that goal is what should keep us going. Just like we see it in Paul. That goal that we keep in front of us of following Jesus, of making much of Jesus with all of our lives, that that is what drives us, it's what pushes us, it's how we evaluate who we are. Are we centering everything around the goal? Are we moving in the direction of our lives being a response to God in worship? Are we pursuing that goal? Is that what keeps us going? As long as we have breath in our lungs, we have purpose to pursue the goal of lifting up Jesus Christ, of being a reflection of him wherever we go. We keep going even when it doesn't make sense. Paul writes later, he's writing to the church in Corinth, and there's a couple passages we're going to look at here this morning. That when you take in light what we just read in Acts, uh, in Acts chapter 14 of what happened to him. Now listen to these words, okay? This is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Listen with me here. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. Always carrying around in the body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We are persevering toward the goal so that Jesus would be seen through who we are. Following Jesus, making much of him with our lives, should be the breath in our lungs that keeps us going. It is the goal. Second, the goal keeps us going. Second, the goal gives us perspective. So for me in this passage, uh, the game changer comes in verse 22. Whenever I got to verse 22, my mind had a hard time kind of turning the corner. And then when you read what comes before and what, becomes, what comes after verse 22, um, it kind of puts it all in a different sort of perspective. So in verse 22, it says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And then this last piece, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul is not saying that hardship is to come, so put on your good boots and your work pants and get ready because it's going to get tough. Paul is saying, look at my body. This is difficulty. Look at my life. This is tribulation. Look at my life. This is suffering. It will come. But this goal of pursuing Jesus, of lifting Jesus up, it changes the perspective of even what that suffering looks like. The idea of suffering is something that is common in New Testament language. Jesus talked about suffering. Jesus talked about difficulty. Jesus said, there is no reason for you to think that if they hate me, that they are not going to hate you. Jesus, for him, it wasn't a question of when suffering or tribulation or difficulty, if it was going to come, it was when it is going to come. We identify with Christ 
with the idea of suffering that we will experience. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about how we can identify with Christ in his suffering so we identify with him in our comfort. Think about this, the suffering that Christ took on our behalf, what he did for us, what he endured for us, that as we experience suffering in life, we identify with a taste of that. John chapter 16 and verse 33, it says, I have said these things to you, and Jesus is talking to the disciples. I'm telling them that difficulty is around the corner, that they're going to be on their, um, they're going to leave him and go to their own houses. He says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In Romans chapter 5 uh, verse 3, Paul tells us that suffering produces endurance. In James uh, chapter 1 verse 2, and this is a different Greek word that he's using here, but the same idea encapsulates both. It says that testing produces steadfastness. Difficulty is going to happen in life, but if we are pursuing the goal of lifting up Jesus, it makes difficulty look different. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and just hang with me as we're jumping around here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 16, again, listen to what Paul is saying here in light of what he's been through. So we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to the things, look not to the things that are seen, but to the unseen. For the things that are seen, this body, this life, all that's in front of you is transient, but things that are unseen are eternal. When I, um, I was almost even reluctant to camp here for a little while this morning, because when I talk about difficulty, and I talk about suffering, and I talk about hardship, You've already got that thing in your head. You've already got that thing that this is my hardship, this is my suffering, this is my difficulty, and you're already there. And it's easy for us to turn um, our, uh, our attention toward that thing and, and lose sight of what this truth, what this hope is for us this morning. Because when I say the truth is not if we will experience it, but that we will I know that I'm speaking to a room of people that when I talk about that, there is a magnitude that lies in some of the difficulty and the suffering that, that you guys have experienced this morning that I can't even imagine to understand. You know what hardship is. You know what difficulty is. We know it. We don't seek to go after it. We don't try to go after suffering because Paul is saying through hardship we must enter the kingdom of heaven. We know it because we experience it. And there's a couple different kinds that I think we experience. But we don't go after it to earn something for ourselves. In fact, what Jesus says is that because you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, that when you experience suffering, tribulation, hardship, difficulty— that your citizenship affects the way that you perceive, the way that you have perspective on one that, what that difficulty, that hardship, what that looks like for us. So the question isn't if it will happen, but when it will happen and how we will respond. So there are a couple things, and I want to fine-tune kind of what Paul, the, the type of suffering that Paul is talking about here. So we know suffering because it is part of the human experience. All of us. 
We know it because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is wrought with the effects of sin, of devastation, of injustice, of socioeconomic inequality, of hurt, of pain, of brokenness, of sickness, of death. We know it. We know what that kind of difficulty and suffering is like. It's part of the human experience. We know what suffering looks like as a result of our own or someone else's foolish choices. We know what that kind of hurt and that pain and that difficulty, we know what that's like if we live in relationship with others. We not only are experiencing it because of the the poor choices that we've made on our own, we're experiencing it because of those that we love. We know that difficulty happens. We know that it's in our lives. And those two things Those two things, I think for the majority of us in our room, when we talk about pain and suffering, those are the things we're talking about. The last one is specifically what Paul and Barnabas were experiencing. And this is suffering for the sake of the gospel. This is persecution. This is not just the common experience of life. This is carrying the gospel into dark territory and your life being on the line because of it. This is the persecuted church. This is not what we see in the United States in our common, everyday, over-the-mountain, Birmingham experience. It's not what we see in life. But it is a reality. It was a reality for Paul and Barnabas. It is a severe reality for some of our brothers and sisters that are living overseas. My wife, Holly, and I uh, were, were just kind of like looking through this passage earlier this week and just started thinking about the persecuted church. And uh, we remembered, I think it was maybe five years ago, we were, um, we were visiting some uh, brothers and sisters in East Asia. And they asked us to come and, and talk to people that led house churches in their area. And so they pick us up discreetly in a car. This sounds like a movie, but I promise I'm being legit here. They pick us up in a discreet car outside of where we were staying. They drive us down a road to a back road to another back road. They get us out of the car. They take us through one, ho- one house to another house, through a hallway to another house, into a room with windows that the, that, that are, um, uh, the shutters are shut on. And there are these men and women that are sitting there, and all they want to hear is a word of encouragement. Remind us of the hope of the gospel. And I have to tell you, when I looked at them, I was reminded of the hope of the gospel. That same trip as we talked to these young seminary students that are sitting in this classroom and they just want to know, how can we share Jesus with our friends in a country that is so opposed to the gospel? As we go and visit a house church and are huddled in this really small room, And these families, even as they're singing quietly, they're doing it with great joy. The suffering that they experience, suffering for the sake of the gospel, they do it in such a way with the goal in mind. Now, this is something that I think that we can experience here in the States. I think that we can experience persecution for the sake of the gospel. And I'm not talking about persecution for the sake of morality. I'm talking about persecution for the sake of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with someone in a a way in which it totally clashes with their worldview. And there's repercussion that comes against us. And it may not be physical. It may be professional. It may be social. 
maybe causes interaction or maybe causes us to not have that promotion or not to be able to have that kid, our kid over to their house anymore, or it may not mean that we can have the same type of professional conversation that we once had. But we want to speak the truth of the gospel, even if that part of suffering comes along and play with us. The gospel, it causes suffering because it clashes with a worldview. It clashes with the way that we see life. It's not just an us against the world. It is the gospel against anti-gospel. And what we experience when that happens in our lives, what Paul is showing with his life is that we continue to move toward the goal of lifting up Jesus. That we are struck down, but we are not destroyed. We are persecuted, but we are not abandoned. So these types of suffering, what do we do with them? My encouragement this morning to us, and I say us because I'm with you in this. When we talk about keeping the goal of following Jesus in mind, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty. That does not wash away the pain. That does not wash away the discomfort. That does not wash away the bruises that come along with living in difficulty. It changes our perspective in the way that we view it. Not just am I going to get through it, not just is it going to be over one day, But as we are living in it, as we're living in difficulty, as we're living in suffering, as we're in the middle of it, are we lifting up the name of Jesus? Not just with our mouths, not just saying, God's the only one who's getting me through this. While we should say that, but are our lives focusing on the truth that he is with us, that he empowers us, that we are together in this? that we are not left on our own. And just like he told the disciples that he is our peace. Are we living life like that? So I know that there are some of us in this room this morning. You're experiencing this hurt. You're experiencing suffering. My encouragement to us is to keep the gospel in view as we, as we endure, as we go through whatever that form of suffering looks like for us. Look what happens with Paul after, after he um, endures suffering in uh, verse 22. In verse 23 is when we see that he goes and he uses his suffering, he uses his pain as a source of encouragement for the church. He encourages them, he strengthens them, and he says it's going to be hard. It's all kind of like in one breath here. So even as we pursue following Jesus in the midst of suffering, we have the opportunity to encourage those that are around us, to speak and live the hope of Jesus Christ that is within us. We have the opportunity to do this in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of suffering. Romans uh, chapter 8, starting in verse 31 It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who it is to condemn. Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who sits at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Remember Paul's situation here. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Remember your situation here. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For as it, for as it is written, we are <clears throat> for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is truth for our souls. This is truth for our situation. So this morning, we keep our eyes on the goal of lifting up God through the work of Jesus Christ. We keep our eyes on that goal. That goal keeps us going. That goal gives us perspective. That is our goal. So this morning, we're going to respond to this truth together. We're going to respond There may be some of us in this room this morning that as I talk about difficulty, we're totally on the same page. But when I talk about the hope of Christ in the midst of difficulty, we're missing a beat. You may be in this room this morning and may not have a relationship with Christ. And my prayer is this morning is that you would hear the word of God, his desire to forgive you of your sin, to give you purpose and to be with you and that you would respond to that. For those of us in the room this morning that do have a relationship with Christ, that are trusting in him, that he is our hope, I think there's a couple ways that we can respond. Some of us, we're not in the middle of difficulty. We just got through it. We know that it's around the corner. I think this morning we ask God to keep our eyes on the gospel, to keep our eyes on the person of Jesus Christ that we didn't just get through difficulty so we could live in ease. And we're not just living in ease so that one day we can be stored up with energy to face difficulty. We focus our eyes on the person of Jesus Christ, that he is with us. And this morning, if you are in the midst of difficulty, that thing that you thought about when I first brought up suffering, if it's still kind of like rattling around in your mind and even kind of like hurts a little bit even to bring to the forefront of thought, My truth, the truth of scripture that I want us to hear this morning is that God is with us in the midst of that suffering. He doesn't want you to just get through it. He wants to be with you in the middle of it. And he wants to be exalted through the strength that he gives you. Jesus says that he is with us even until the end of the age. That his Holy Spirit lives inside of us. is with us. If you just bow your heads and close your eyes for just a second, 
I want you to just pray and kind of reflect on the truth of God. What does this mean for you? That God is with us in the midst of suffering. That we need to keep the goal of the gospel in mind. What is this for you this morning? Ask God to reveal that to you. Hear him tell you that he is with you, that he will be with you, that he has been with you. Hear those words. Father, this morning, I thank you for your son, Jesus. I thank you that he himself is our peace. That when we face difficulty, we face suffering, that we are not left alone. That he knows what suffering and difficulty is like. That not only do we identify with us, but he identi- we identify with him, but he identifies with us. God, we thank you that we have a God, that we have you, that draws us into relationship with yourself through your son, Jesus. God, in whatever situation is going on in our lives this morning, God, I pray that we would keep the gospel in the forefront of our minds. That we would look to the cross, that we would look to Jesus, that we would live lives following him, magnifying him, bringing glory to him. God, that we would do it in life, that we would do it in suffering, that we would do it in encouragement. We thank you that you are with us. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.